It's time for Nordic on Tap. Welcome to our podcast featuring interviews, music, folk tales, and lots of hygge, all with a Nordic flavor. I'm your host, Eric Stavney. You're hearing one of the first times I ever heard a hardanger fiddle, or hardingfele, as they say in Norway. This was in a gym at a school in Sandana, Norway in 1979, with Petter Eide on fiddle, playing for the Nordfjord Lekering dance group. I found myself fascinated back then by the hardingfele and the many blended harmonizing notes in the music. That's two or three strings being played together. You can play a regular violin that way, but usually you hear single rather than double or triple notes. And then there's the beautiful fiddle itself, traditionally with inlaid mother of pearl on the fingerboard, designs around the edge, and an unusual scroll at the end. Since that day, 40 years ago in Norway, I've come to see the Hardingfele as a symbol of what is authentically Norwegian, like stave churches, Ibsen's plays, Edvard Grieg's music. The Hardingfele is referred to as the national folk instrument of Norway. I've learned that Hardanger fiddles have some special differences compared to a standard violin, including what have been called drone strings, found underneath the regular strings, which are never directly played. Now, I've assumed this means Hardanger fiddle music has a drone or a note being played in the background, as with bagpipes, but I've never been able to pick out and and hum that drone note, as you can with bagpipes. And as you'll learn in this show, those special strings are more accurately called sympathetic strings. Three years ago, I met an actual Hardanger fiddle maker, an American, at a Sons of Norway Heritage Day, and I thought, wow, <laughs> there can't be that many makers of Hardanger fiddles in the United States. They've got to be scarcer than hen's teeth. This was Lindbergh from Eugene, Oregon. I've met several great Hardanger fiddle players over the years, but one of them stands out for me as very special and extremely talented and accomplished. That is Rachel Nesvig from Seattle, Washington. She's special not only because I think she's a virtuoso, but she plays one of the violins made by this luthier or violin maker, Lynn Berg. So I've long wanted to sit down with these two and find out what the Hardingfele is all about, how they're made, how they're played, and hear what led them to be involved with this very special Norwegian folk instrument. A heads up, this podcast is much longer than my normal 30 to 40 minutes. It runs over an hour, so be prepared to settle in. I spoke to both Lynn and Rachel by video conference, which in the last two years during the pandemic, many of us have learned that they can have um, less than perfect sound quality. The sound on this call I had with Lynn is a bit ragged in places with some distortion, but bear with it. 
You'll also hear Lynn's wife in the background at one point, which I found highly amusing. I plan to post the transcript of the call on my website, nordicontap.com, when that's ready, in case you want to see what was actually said in print. Here's my conversation with Lynn, who hails from Eugene, Oregon, in the United States. Are you yourself Norwegian or Swedish? Norwegian, by heritage, not by birth. Grandparents were immigrants. Any particular part of the country? Lillehammer and uh, an island north of uh, Trondheim. I've seen you dressed in a bunad, so I was wondering if that was more of a costume bunad or whether it was reflective of where your relatives were from. Uh, no, it's reflective of a Gudbrandstall, which is yep. Lillehammer. I yeah. kind of almost like a tartan plaid, like red. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's Gudbrandstall. That's cool. Can I ask if you had a vocation before you were a luthier, and how you, did you move to become one? Out of college, I got a, a job with the Travelers Insurance Company. Yep. And so I was with them for uh, 26 years. Most, most of that time was back in Connecticut, although I grew up in Eugene. And then circumstances were such that we moved back to Eugene in 91. So although I was working with uh, violins on a part-time basis in Connecticut, then I thought, well, they've got to better do a little bit more of that uh, when we came out here, in addition to some other stuff to earn a few dollars here and there. But uh, I did have a career, so to speak, before, uh, before fiddles. The other part of that story is the fact that our younger daughter started to play when she was six and a half. And at about eight, age eight, we changed teachers, and her teacher thought that her instrument needed some work. So again, we are in Connecticut, so we took it to a very fine German-trained maker outside of Boston, and he indicated all the things that needed to be done to it to bring it up to snuff. Being the good, good Norwegian that I am, I thought, you know, I can do that myself if I know what to do. And so then it was just kind of a search to figure out how to get some training. And that led to a number of summer sessions at the University of New Hampshire, where they have a program called Summer Violin Institute, where they bring in a German master violin maker, a repair person out of New York City. And he was, he was top-notch because he's also the traveling repairman for the uh, New York Philharmonic. The maker actually was the director of the Mittenwald School of Violin Making in Germany. So the information we got was just top-notch. And then we, of course, had to do develop our own skill level. So then uh, with that, then it's just kind of progressed from, from there. And that so, was many summers, huh? More than one. Well, my wife thinks it's probably a hundred, but uh, <laughs> it was probably closer to uh, 10, maybe 11. 15. It's a little hard to know when I started. I know my last one was in uh, 92. It was a program established initially to help string instrument teachers so that they could better handle their own school instruments. How to set up bridges and set up a sound post and you know the fundamental issues that school instruments get involved with. So did you then start making your first violin or something like that? I made my first violin in class. Aha, uh -huh. got in it. New Hampshire. And it took me uh, four summers to do it, two week sessions each time until it was finished. Right. And then uh, the the same daughter that was my violin player, she did a uh, junior year in Norway, Norway, yeah. And she brought back 
a book on how to make the Hardoner settle by Svatus Sandvik. That particular book was written in Norwegian, and it was primarily his methodology in not necessarily making a Hardoner fiddle, but in making a violin. Well, I knew how to make a violin from my time in New Hampshire, but there were some full-size drawings in the back of this book then that pertained to the Hardanger fiddle. And so with that information, I made my first Hardanger fiddle then in 93. So then that's kind of where this whole thing started. And That's interesting. So you learn how to make violins, but then you address this very special type of violin, right? You... At some point in the early 90s, I came to the realization that every city has who knows how many violin makers. <laughs> every city block has a violin maker, it seems. So it just dawned on, on me that there are just too many violin makers. Right. So if one of my instruments was hanging up in a good violin shop where you have 100 instruments on the wall, the odds of being that one being picked is slim. So I thought, well, maybe I ought to transition to the hardanger fiddle because although the demand is less, certainly because there are far fewer players, but you get to know the community. Yeah. You get to know the other makers. You get to know the players at least those in this country, and then also I've no, I know some of in Norway as well, but it just seemed to me that that was the way to go. And so then I transitioned then into pretty much exclusively the hardanger fiddle, although even now I'll do some uh, violin repair. I very much enjoy doing the hardanger fiddle repair if it comes to me. Yes, right. So what makes, Ed, for folks who don't know, what makes the Hardanger fiddle different from a standard violin? The oldest one in existence dates back to 1651. That's in existence. Now, was there something prior to that time? Of course, at this point, we don't know. There's speculation that there was something prior to that time. The violin itself kind of came about in 1525 or thereabouts. So the Hardanger fiddle, if we say 1650, it came a little late to the party, but still very early in the whole string instrument, violin field anyway. The original one, the, the oldest one, is quite small. It would be somewhere between a one-half size and one-three-quarter size modern standard. It was really quite, quite rounded hmm. in its caricature. Over time, you know, the um, violin has kind of flattened out a bit. And uh, bear with me a second. And you have a fine example. Yes. <laughs> this is my rendition of it. So you're showing us it looks like a, a very beautiful decorated violin. The, the curvature here is really quite rounded. Mm -hmm. And it's very, 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 very narrow compared to a violin. Now, a, a violin and the modern hardanger fiddles have transitioned to a very Italian classical violin shape, hmm. where this is very narrow and full. So they've made that transition over time. But they still characteristically are a little fuller in the body than a violin, by maybe two centimeters greater in depth than a violin. When we talk about a violin, we, have, we talk about the curvature of the top. The sound holes are carved into that curvature. Now, are those those little S-shaped things on the lateral to the yes. you know, yes. on the sides? Yes. Yeah. Okay. 
Now, they're called F-holes, the sound holes, and they're just carved in that curvature. Mm -hmm. With the Hardanger fiddle, however, they are on two distinct levels, whereas the violin is just carved within the curvature. Very unique. But the oldest one in existence is made that way. So that tradition has carried forward to modern times. The other thing that has carried forward is that the oldest had two sympathetic understrings. You have the four strings that are playable, just like on a violin. Right. And then running in the middle of the bridge, underneath the fingerboard to its own tuning pegs, you have understrings, which ring sympathetically. They're not played, they just ring sympathetically, picking up the vibrations of the other strings to provide their own undercurrent sound. The oldest in the 1651 has two. Modern instruments have five. Hmm. So the current trend in making is to have five understrings. And this goes back, let me say, 25 years. For the latter half of the 1800s and all of the 1900s, it was four understrings. But now the trend is five. That's, that's what I'm making. And each go to their own tuning pegs, and they each have their own unique tuning. So, You know, that suggests then that there's more pegs on a Hardanger violin than a standard violin. Absolutely. Standard violin has four. Right. The modern instruments have nine. The difficulty that we, we have is that with all of these strings, if you pluck a string to tune it, the top strings is not that big of an issue. But to pluck one of the understrings to tune it, and you turn the peg, and it's not changing the sound, you're plucking the wrong string. Right. And that can lead to a broken string quite easily. If you haven't learned to swear, you will learn how by changing an understring that you've broken. It is a real pain. It's easier to replace all five understrings than it is to replace one. So the pegs are out on the... It's called the peg box. Peg box. Oh, it's before the scroll at the end, but after... It's between the fingerboard and the head for the scroll at the end of the fiddle. Now, that yeah. does not look like a garden variety scroll there. <laughs> well, it's, it's not a classical violin scroll, no. Well, these are folk instruments, so there are some folk touches that go along with it. One of which is up here, which is a, a dragon head dragon or head. the character of a woman up there, a young lady. Uh, but primarily, it's a, a dragon head type of creature that goes back again to the original. And, and so that's on virtually all Hardanger violins. They have something different for the scroll, or do some of them have yes. tradition? And and what I carve, I, I I would say is really quite traditional mm-hmm. in in my own way. It's very traditional. I think of violins in orchestras, but I don't usually think of Hardanger fiddles. Uh, multiple hardanger fiddles playing together that right are they mostly solo instruments they are mostly solo instruments they the tuning of the hardanger fiddle is different than that of a violin it's typically tuned higher and although there are 22 standard tunings for the hardanger fiddle well me too i i think in reality there is one primo tuning and there are a whole bunch of variations off of that but the point being is that it's typically an instrument used solo to play for a dance because there are a lot of different tunings but also the player will pitch it 
to where they feel it sounds the best. When it's tuned to itself, it doesn't matter. So if you do have several players getting together to play, you've got to agree upon a pitch and then all tuned to that particular pitch. It's big claim to fame here most recently has been the Lord of the Rings Hmm. movies. Yeah. Where the Hardanger fiddle was one of the instruments used in that orchestration after the great success of those movies. The composer, Howard Shore, condensed all of that musical score into a Lord of the Rings symphony, which in the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, two or three years, it was extremely popular, Hmm. primarily because it was an additional performance out of the regular symphony performance series. It got an entirely new audience into the concert hall. And of course, these orchestras had to have a Hardanger fiddle. That's just part of the contract, I guess. Sure. When orchestras rent scores, they agree to use the orchestration that's indicated. Well, so there for a period of time, I was shipping Hardanger fiddles virtually all over the world for these orchestras to rent for their performances. I shipped them to Singapore and to Tokyo to Madrid, lots of different places. You had that many on hand? Yeah. A couple of times, actually, I had to schedule an instrument to go to three different orchestras before it came back to me. So it was a little complex for a while. But so I had two or three out a few times. It, it was fun. Basically, it was fun. Say, I saw on your website that you've made some kind of a, a quartet. I, I've made a quartet of Hardanger style instruments uh-huh. uh, that being uh, two fiddles a viola and a cello actually i've made three quartets but all of them are are fully decorated in the uh, scheme of the hardanger fiddle my first one i think maybe had four understrings as opposed to five but i think the these last two that i've made uh, have five understrings the problem with that is that there is no tradition for the viola and the cello. Right. It gets to be a question then of how are they tuned? What strings do you use? The violin is, or the fiddle is pitched higher than the violin, so you have to have special strings. Well, you can't use cello strings, commercial cello strings, because if you pitch them to a pitch that would be higher, you're going to destroy the strings and destroy the instrument just because the tensions get so great. It was kind of a foolish thing to do, but it was fun to do. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, I, did I hear something about a quartet debuting at, at POU in Lagerquist Hall? The, the first quartet I made back in uh, '02, we had a coming out, so to speak, party <laughs> with, that, with a concert at POU. We had a Rachel Nesvik was on uh, second fiddle. Karn Code was uh, first fiddle. Karn's husband was on, on viola. And uh, Linda Casperson from Gig Harbor was on cello. David Code, he arranged the music for that performance. Then we also had, at the time, Gig Harbor Spellman's Log, which was a group of kids that played Hardanger fiddle. It was a wonderful couple hours worth of fiddle Norwegian music. When was the king here in the Northwest? About five years ago. When he came prior to that, 
there was a luncheon for him at PLU, and the quartet then provided the music. From my perspective, of course, it was pretty cool because yeah. you know my play, my quartet's being played for the king. Not everybody can say that, I guess. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of tools that you use to make a violin? The problem with making a an, an instrument is that there's a lot of waste wood. And although you can use a bandsaw to cut, cut out the basic shape of a top or the basic shape of a back, there's just a lot of waste wood that you have to get rid of. With spruce being the top, maple being the back, uh, with the spruce being much softer, it's fairly easy to get rid of that waste wood by using a, a gouge, take away a lot of the excess, then you get down to using small planes to remove stuff. And then once you get the outside curved like you want it, then you flip it over to carve out the inside. Again, it's the same technique. Now, with maple, however, that's tough. That yeah. is hard wood. The purists will hog it away, I suppose, with uh, gouges and this type of thing. Many years ago, I had a friend in Connecticut who was a machinist and also a violin enthusiast. He created for me a very rough duplicated router so that at least the outside of the back, I have a pattern and then I have my wood and then I bring the router back and forth and, and it follows that pattern. Now it's very rough. To translate into modern times, one would use a CNC machine. But the way I do it, it gets rid of the excess wood, but there is still a lot of work to be done on the outside. And But then when I flip it over, I use a drill press. I just make oodles of holes, which basically gets rid of some excess wood down to a depth that I want, then cleaning it up. Now, once I get it to that point, then I start using what's called referred to as a caliper, which will measure that thickness. And, and it shows up on a dial how, how thick that is. And from there, you can start to adjust the thicknesses of what you're doing. And through the use of looking at thicknesses and bending it in your hands, bending the piece of wood in your hands, you can kind of feel where there's some uh, tough spot. The last, the last millimeter is the hardest part. Yeah, sounds very exacting. Get that, it takes forever it seems, to get down that last millimeter to where you want it. So how do, how do people find out about you? I mean, your webpage, I'm sure, doesn't hurt. I think it's a little bit word of mouth. I think um, my website helps. Yep. It's yep. fiddlemaker.com. Fiddlemaker, all one word, lowercase.com. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want a waiting list. If somebody wants an instrument, I want to be able to, yeah. here, this is what I've got, like it or not. I don't like commissions because somebody who commissions something has an expectation of what they're going to get. And if I don't fulfill that expectation, then I failed in their eyes. Yeah. So I would rather just continue, just to continue make at my own pace. And if I have something to send somebody, I'm happy to do that. If I, I don't have anything at the time, okay, I'll write their name down. And sometime later, I'll tell them, if you're still interested, I can ship it to you. But that way, it's no pressure on me. That's just the way I operate. I find it to be quite successful. Yeah. But again, you know, I only make maybe two or three a year. So it's low production. 
demand is low too. It's not something that you can crank out and then just ship out and sell. It just doesn't work that way. But well, thank you so much. Good deal. All right. Yeah, you, you take care. All right. So that's Lindbergh's amazing story, and you can learn more about him at his website, fiddlemaker.com, all lowercase. Now comes my interview with Rachel Neswig with a bit better sound quality. Uh, later in the interview, I asked her to play her Hardanger fiddle for us so you can hear what it sounds like and why it's special. Rachel, what would help me is give a little bit about you and your musical background. Yeah, I was born in Walla Walla, Washington. And when I was four years old, we moved to Stavanger, Norway. And we lived there for five years. And my sister and I both attended international school. So we did get some exposure to Norwegian. And of course, living in a country, you get exposure just by living there. When I was eight years old, I started violin lessons in Norway from a Polish man. So that was my journey with music, although I'd started piano when I was four years old. I grew up in a pretty musical family, and so because I already started on the violin, it was a pretty natural addition to start playing hardanger fiddle. So when I was, I think, 15 or 16, I heard the hardanger fiddle live for the first time, at least within my memory, and it was a recital by Karin Code in Gig Harbor, Washington. and. Karen is an American, but has studied in Norway as well. And she gave a recital, and I remember sitting on a pillow really close to her and just being mesmerized by the sound of the heart on her fiddle. So, yeah, it was pretty natural to pick it up with my Norwegian roots and Norwegian background, and my parents speak Norwegian. So I decided to start playing, and I got a fiddle made by Lindbergh, and I think I acquired it when I was 16 years old, which is, I feel so grateful that my parents helped me with that and I got to play the Hardanger fiddle. And then I applied to St. Olaf College. One of the main reasons I wanted to go there, besides their great music program, is that it's the only college in the U.S. that has a Hardanger fiddle program. So that seemed like a dream come true. So I went to St. Olaf and then my junior year, I went back to Norway to study abroad, and coincidentally, I ended up living in Stavanger, which is where I lived when I was a kid. So it was really interesting to go back when I was 20 versus when I was five living there. And I was mostly studying classical violin at the conservatory in Stavanger, but I obviously brought my hardanger fiddle and took lessons when I was there and played hardanger fiddle. And although I haven't studied hardanger fiddle at a folk school or gone to Norway with a primary focus to learn this instrument. It was really fabulous to go there and that's when I became a much better Norwegian speaker. I tried to mostly hang out with just Norwegians and said, Snak ikke engelsk to mig. Do not speak English to me. Right, right. <laughs> speak Norwegian. Norwegians have such great English that sometimes they would say, Rachel, it's so much faster if you just tell the story in English. And I said, I know, but I have to learn Norwegian and there's, I'm not going to learn if I'm speaking English. So I ended up being a double Norwegian and music major at St. Olaf, which are two kind of impractical majors. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, it's interesting because now that's what I do with my life. I'm a freelance musician and I play lots of different styles of violin, classical, rock, hip hop, pop, etc., folk. 
Jazz. Um, and then the other side of me plays hard on fiddle and I teach both violin and fiddle. And I have a lot of hard on fiddle students online. And actually even before COVID, I was teaching online lessons to students around the country just because there aren't a ton of people in the Seattle area who play the hard on fiddle. So it's been really fun teaching hard on fiddle and of course playing it here and there. So did you reach out or how did you acquire, did you use the Hardanger Fiddle Association? Yeah, I've been a member of the Hardanger Fiddle Association of America for many years. I don't remember when I first became a member, but I actually taught the beginning Hardanger Fiddle class at their annual workshop maybe 10 years ago at this point. And I love that organization. I'm pretty sure I just, I heard about Lynn Berg, the maker of this fiddle from mutual friends from the Gig Harbor Spelwanzag, um, Linda and Lila Kasperson. One of them, I think, hosted the concert where Karin Code played, and that's kind of how everything started off. And Lindbergh, I don't know if at that point he had already made the Hardanger cello or Hardanger viola, but I got a chance also to play in the that Hardanger quartet. I think I played the Hardanger viola, which was fun. Yeah, I guess you have a viola, right? I have a regular viola, yeah, that my brother-in-law made. My brother-in-law is a luthier, so. Small world. My sister is a flute player, but she ended up marrying a bass player who happened to go to violin making school and now makes his living. His shop is in Grand Rapids. It's called Grand Rapids Violins, and yeah, and then he made my viola, and it's nice to have a luthier in the family. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll get to the details of the Hardanger fiddle, but... Can I ask, you've probably seen a number of Hardanger fiddles that are not yours at this point. Is there anything about Lynn's violin or fiddle that you think is special or unique? I know. I have seen quite a few fiddles, and I actually have I have another fiddle that is very different than this fiddle. Um, Lynn's fiddle is the fiddle that I play most of the time. But if I ever want to play any tunes in other tunings, then I use the other fiddle that was a gift. It was given to me a few years ago. And it's much thicker and heavier. Lynn's fiddle is very light, which I really like. Nothing against the other fiddle, but Lynn's fiddle is really light, super easy to play. And everyone who sees it says it's very beautiful. So I agree with that. It has lots of rose mulling traditional painting of roses all around the instrument. And this particular fiddle has mother of pearl outlining the entire instrument and not all, all fiddles edges. have that. Yeah. Um, but it has the classic mother of pearl also in the fingerboard. fingerboard. So what are the, can you describe the ink embellishments like rose modeling on there? What, is it floral, I guess? So rose modeling is literally the painting of roses. So they look very floral kind of looks like a vine with the leaves coming out and then little blossoms as well. So is there like a continuous a vine going around with the blossoms coming off? They're just bursts of um, The vines go about halfway down the instrument and then in the very center of the instrument by the bridge where the bow goes, then there's kind of a very large floral arrangement, I would say. Less vine and more flowers in the very center of the instrument. And then the vines are kind of more outlining the instrument, just like the mother of pearl is. Wow, that's beautiful. Anything on the back? Yeah, the back side also has similar drawings. It's, It's a little different. There's some more vines around the back. And then at the very center of the back, there's also, I don't know how to 
describe it exactly, but there's... Does it look like a compass rose or something like that? It all, maybe it is a compass rose, yeah. That's interesting. I honestly don't know that much about the actual rose mulling on it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So it, you mentioned that this this instrument was lighter than your other regular fiddle, and I've heard that about hardanger fiddles, that they're thinner and lighter as a rule. Is that your impression? So, well, there's a couple of things. The The actual body of the hardanger fiddle is slightly smaller than a violin. The neck is slightly smaller because the instrument is tuned a whole step higher than the violin. So the string length is going to be slightly shorter. Just like a string bass is much bigger than a violin because it's lower. So the hardanger fiddle is actually a little bit smaller than the violin. Although it doesn't fit in a regular violin case a lot of the time because because of the sympathetic strings that go underneath the strings that you play, there have to be eight or nine pegs in the peg box, so towards the scroll of the instrument. And because of that, the scroll is really long and the peg box is really long, so it doesn't fit. It's longer than a violin. The body, I think, is lighter than most violins. My actual classical violin is maybe about the same weight. The hardanger fiddle is a little top heavy because of the longer scroll and peg box. But my other hard on fiddle is heavier than this instrument. It almost feels like it's thicker wood. Oh, you have a second hard on fiddle. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But one of the reasons it's easier in a lot of ways to play this instrument for my fingers compared to the violin is that the action, so the, the space between the strings and the fingerboard is smaller on the hard on fiddle than the violin. So you don't have to press down as far and your finger hits the fingerboard, or the string hits the fingerboard. It's so much easier to do really fast trills because you don't have to press down as far. Which also, on the hard auger fiddle, you rarely shift and play higher than just in home base or first position. And if you were to shift more, it'd actually be challenging on this instrument because you would probably hit the other strings really easily because they're closer to the fingerboard. I've heard the bridge is flatter too, so playing two at once is easier? Yes. Yeah, the bridge is way flatter than a violin bridge, and it's mostly yeah, to encourage playing double stops, playing two strings at once. Right. You, It's actually a little challenging to play one string on the hard on fiddle. You really have to focus to not hit the other strings. But fortunately, 95% of the time you're playing two strings always. Now, I've heard that, and I, I was watching a video you had. Was it your, one of your Pizzicato Peeps videos? Ugh. And you were showing the fingerboard and placement of your fingers on the strings. It looks like, and I've heard, that you don't really use vibrato, wiggle your finger on hardanger fiddles. Is that right? Generally, yes. It kind of depends on the player. I rarely use vibrato. There are a couple of exceptions where, in a listening tune, um, I can even play the very beginning if you want. You might add a little bit of vibrato as an ornamentation. And some players might play a little bit of vibrato on the last note, but I generally never use vibrato on this instrument unless it's part of a listening tune. This instrument is a Baroque instrument. So a lot of this music is played like Baroque music and a lot of Baroque music you don't use vibrato or you use minimal vibrato. So I actually find there's so many similarities between the bow stroke and the ornaments in Baroque music then as there are in hard on our fiddle. Playing Baroque music is very similar to playing folk music. Yes. 
Yeah. So I've heard that not using vibrato, it messes with the resonance of the sympathetic strings if you are using vibrato. Can you address that? Speak to it at all? Whether it's based in true fact or not, I think that my instrument resonates a lot better when I don't vibrate because it keeps that pure... So basically, if your strings are perfectly in tune, your sympathetic strings with the strings above, that purity of tone makes the instrument resonate so brilliantly. And I think that if you add vibrato, it kind of messes with that natural resonance. Mm -hmm. I'm not a purist, but I, I think this instrument in general sounds better with no vibrato. It maybe it sounds muddy or something. If, yeah, yeah, it kind of interrupts that beautiful, pure resonance. It's kind of like um, Renaissance singing, like these beautiful, or boys choirs who sing with these beautiful tone. And then if one person starts to vibrate, it kind of just messes with the whole, that beautiful, pure sound. So so tell me more about the sympathetic strings. Now you've said that they resonate with why you're playing other strings. Do they resonate to the same note? Do they resonate with overtones? How does that go? Generally, they resonate just with the same string or the same note. So for example, that's my open A string, although it's a sounding B. That, and that was the, the second one. It has a more tinny sound. That was the sympathetic string. If they're perfectly in tune, then every time I play that B, or my open A string, or a fingered B, which is a couple more places on the instrument, the sympathetic string will wobble and resonate and create more sound. And then every other string of the sympathetic strings, every time you play that same note, and if they're perfectly in tune with each other, you can actually watch the sympathetic string vibrate and move. Wow. And this is kind of the case with all string instruments, even on the violin, if I play an in tune finger D, my open D string will vibrate and move. So with hard on our fiddle, you just get bonus because you get your open strings that will also wiggle and vibrate and then you also get the sympathetic strings. If your instrument sounds out of tune or if your if your instrument's not really resonating, I always tell myself and my students check your sympathetic strings because a lot of times our instruments just don't speak because our sympathetic strings might be slightly out of tune. And it's always easy to blame your instrument first, right? right. Of course. Is there a way to hear that? Is there a way to hold the sympathetic string from vibrating and play whatever it is, the A, and then let it go and oh. we can hear both? Is there a way? I can try. Can you hear oh, that? Can... Yeah. I'm going to put like a little cloth on top of my sympathetic strings to make them not vibrate. See if that works. <laughs> Do you want me to just play one string? Well, for starters, maybe. Okay. So that's without the sympathetic, and I'm going to take the cloth off now. Okay. Wow, yeah. it lasted longer, too. Big difference. Holy smokes. I've actually never done that before. Wow, that, that really did last a lot longer. That's cool. What a great idea. I'm going to do that for other, for other people now. I often play my open strings of the violin and compare that resonance to the hard on your fiddle, but I've never actually dampened the sympathetics before. So yeah. And if you put, so if I play two strings, then you'll get double the resonance. 
God, I can almost count that. It's almost five seconds. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. So they say the sympathetic strings aren't played, and yet they're attached to the they're attached to the pegs. So how do you? I've read something about they go under the fingerboard. How does that work? So a violin, the violin neck, is solid wood, but on the hardanger fiddle, there's a hole in the neck of the fiddle. So the sympathetic strings go underneath the fingerboard and through this little hollow passageway. It's like a tunnel. And then they go up to the peg box. And so the, the Hardanger Fiddle bridge has basically like two stories. If you think about a level on top and then it's like a parking garage and then there's another level. Mm-hmm. And so there's another track where the strings go and they land on the the little hole in the bridge, so they have their own little lane. Got yeah. it. So, so is it an open hole for all the strings, or each st- resonant string has its own hole that passes through the bridge? It's an open hole for all of the strings, oh, but it. they each have their own little lane that they sit in. Right. And actually, I remembered there are some fiddles that the sympathetic strings are too close to each other. And when they are perfectly in tune, and if they're vibrating like crazy, they'll actually hit the other strings and then create buzzing. So it's really important, anyone who wants to make a hard on your fiddle out there, um, to make sure the sympathetic strings are not too close to each other because then they might hit each other, <laughs> which I've seen some fiddles do this. And it's hard because I want these fiddles to be played really in tune, but if the sympathetic strings are super in tune, then they actually will hit the other strings or and cause more buzzing. But fortunately, I don't think, I haven't seen any of Lynn's fiddles have that problem. And my sympathetic strings are very nicely spaced out. And when they're nicely spaced out, they're easier to tune as well, because if they're so close to each other, it's really hard to isolate and just pluck one. So when I tune these, Um, I'm using my fingernail. You're reaching through the other strings. Okay. Going through the other strings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the tuning on the top is what, like A, D, A, G, and the bottom is something else? Well, it's a little complicated because we call it our A string because it's like the violin, but it's actually a B. So it's a whole, it's a transposing instrument. So if you're thinking about violin terms, it's E, A, D, A. So the bottom string is tuned up a third from the violin, or or it's the same as your open A. They're in octaves. And that's about 80% of the tunes are tuned in that tuning. It's called opstilt, or up tuning, and that implies that the bass is up. So the lowest string is up. Um, so that the bottom two strings are tuned in a fourth, as opposed to a fifth, like the violin, the viola, and the cello. So at pitch, concert pitch, the strings from high to low are F sharp, B, E, B. And then the understrings, and a lot of fiddles have five understrings, I just have four, but they are most of the same as the open strings. So we have a, a B, a G sharp, an F sharp, and then an E, concert pitch. Um, and it said that Grieg. I'm hearing it. That. I'm hearing it. Yeah. The uh, it, what's it called? Morgan is, is something. Morning. Yeah, song, morning right? mood or yeah. from from Pergint. 
Yeah. Da 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 da. Yeah, that's yeah. That's really something. I, I'm glad you demonstrated that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, sounds like he, among other things, did he he do more with he tried to incorporate more hardanger fiddle tunes into his writing. Yeah, Grieg was super inspired by Norwegian folk music in his music. Um, there's there are even some hardanger fiddle tunes that he basically transcribed and put into some of the like he wrote a piano piece that is basically from a hard on her fiddle hmm. and then a lot of just folk elements in his music with ornaments that are very norwegian sounding little trills and whatnot by norwegian sounding i meant oh. inspired from the hard on her fiddle because right. of course it's norwegian sounding because grieg is norwegian <laughs> yeah but he studied with list and you know i did all these other things but he you know, he did try to, in my mind, tried to capture the Norwegian sound. Definitely. Uh, tell me about top of the pegboard. Is that a lion or a dragon or what do you think that is up there? <laughs> the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> a lot of people ask me this and I, you know, I never have a straight answer because I always hear different answers from other people. So I think it can be whatever you want it to be, a dragon, a lion, a snake, a wolf. But it's inspired from, I don't know if it's what that part of the ship is called, but by the bow. Oh, yeah. oh the stave on a Viking ship. And mm -hmm. it looks like it has a little crown on the top, the animal. Royalty. Royalty. I've seen a lot of different types of scrolls on hardanger fiddles. Some are even like a person's face or, wow. you know, like a mermaid or something. Does yours have a little tongue sticking out of its mouth? Yes, a black tongue. Oh, my. And teeth. And teeth. Oh, that's fierce. But no eyes. That's almost scary. I know. Well, maybe closed eyes. Maybe. Which is, maybe it's sleeping. And the and the nose is, is almost pig-like or, or reptilian or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I don't quite... Actually, I've never even asked Lynn what <laughs> it is. I should ask him. <laughs> Well, would you like to play something for us? Sure. Um, let me double check my tuning because that's another thing about these instruments. You maybe have heard they joke about you spend more time tuning your instrument than you do playing the tunes. Oh my, they go out fast, huh? So the, the strings are made out of animal gut. Mm -hmm. And so that's the same type of strings that were used in the Baroque era. So the strings are just way more fragile and prone to getting out of tune. <laughs> Humidity really affects these instruments and temperature more than your standard violin. So my violin strings are, you know, steel or aluminum. And these strings, they might have steel, like the E string, I think is steel. But all the other strings are gut and they just get out of tune easily. Wow. <laughs> Check my sympathetics. What kind of tune do you want to hear? There's so many options. Yes, there are a lot of options. Oh, and I was also going to note that I have seen a number of hardanger fiddles play, and I noticed that you have a bounce. You, you tap your foot and you bounce a little bit to keep your mm -hmm. rhythm is that something you've seen a lot something that's special to you are there certain songs you do it for or not yeah i would say you tapping your feet is 
pretty much for every song except maybe a listening tune. They say that your feet are the player's accompaniment. Because hmm. this is a primarily a solo instrument. It's a solo dance instrument. So you're playing it for dancers, and sometimes the tunes are very complex. And the dancers are relying on the tapping to hear, to know when to put their feet down. And there are just so many different types of tapping and different types of tunes in this music. There's steady tapping, there's irregular tapping for lots of different types of springars. And the bouncing kind of depends on the tune. So a Rhinelander, for example, is a lot more bouncy than a Vassarul. We could talk forever about all the different types of tunes and the different dialects of tunes. Just like the language, there's different dialects of playing. So someone playing a Valderspringar is going to... A Valderspringar is much different than a Hallingspringar or a Springar from Veslan, from Mm -hmm. southwestern Norway. So they all kind of have their own languages and beat patterns. And, of course, every player plays differently, and then every dancer has a preference for how fast something goes and every player has a preference for that so there's a lot of variables in the world of hard art fiddle <laughs> tapping is kind of a must but i'm gonna i'm not gonna wear my tap shoe i teach with a tap shoe actually over mm-hmm. with online lessons just because it's important for my students to hear the beat i'm not gonna put it on right now you mean tap shoe as in when you do t- tap dancing tap that kind of yeah. shoe? Okay. You know, I didn't start using it until online lessons, but I had a pair of tap shoes from a garage sale, and I use them all the time now, not for tap dancing, but for loud beats for my students to hear. I like that. The only other thing I was going to add, well, there's so many things we could talk about. No, but I was going to say maybe the tune that I'll play, I'll give myself a little plug. My colleague Brandon Vance and I, Brandon Vance is a phenomenal Scottish fiddler, and we have a show called Crossing the North Sea, and it's a fusion show of Norwegian and Scottish music. And we've made some original songs, and we've, we've created arrangements of traditional fiddle tunes. And I was thinking, the tune that I'll play right now, Gamla Erik, it's a hauling, and this tune is maybe one of my favorites that Brandon and I have arranged and we're almost we're in the final stages of making our album so when our album comes out i'll share that information with you eric and you can i'd like that it's interesting it's called gamla eirik so when i was studying norwegian at one point gamla eirik was a euphemism for the devil very true (laughs) oh really am i is that what i remember right yeah good memory gamla eirik is literally like old Eric or but Gamla is plural so it's a little confusing but yeah it's a euphemism for the devil and you'll hear some devil in this tune it's it's one of the more rare tunes that is pretty much in the minor mode a lot of hard on her fiddle is very happy and peppy and major sounding or kind of cross modal but this one is more in the minor mode so I'll play it for you because I was thinking about this tune earlier and I haven't I haven't performed it in a bit, so it'll be fun to play. Oh, of course my instrument's out of tune already. So are you doing that by ear? How are you deciding that that's the right pitch? Yeah, good question. So a lot of times, almost every time I take out my fiddle, I will tune the B or the open A string to a tuner and make sure that stays. Mm -hmm. 
and then I tune the other strings just in fifths, but I try to make sure that my top A string matches my bottom. Because if they match, and also my sympathetic matches, that's three opportunities for resonance. Got it. It's most important that you're in tune with yourself on this instrument because it's almost always just played by itself. So, okay, so here's Gamla Etic. Yes, that's pretty pretty lively, and it, it is in minor, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. That's great. The fellow that you're producing an album with, you said you have a show. Is that like a YouTube show or a? Crossing the North Sea is a project that Brandon Vance and I have created, and it's a show because we have compiled lots of tunes together and fuse Norwegian and Scottish tunes together, and we play lots of different instruments in this show. And so, yeah, it's called a show because it's, we can make it an hour long, we can make it almost three hours long because we know a lot of music together. So we haven't played together live much because of the pandemic, but we did videotape our entire show. It hasn't been released yet. We did create an online show, and then we're also producing an album. Wow, is this... And you can also find us playing a couple of tunes together on my YouTube channel. If you just type in Rachel Nesvig on YouTube, my Heart on Her Fiddle YouTube channel will come up. And on that channel, there's a couple of collaboration videos with Brandon. So you play with him. You do a lot of stuff, right? You've played for, what, video games and orchestras? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the life of a freelancer. I would say I mostly play violin, and lots of different styles. For example, I play in Seattle Rock Orchestra and that's super fun to play rock and pop music on the violin and I get to play with this distortion pedal a lot mm. and I love that. And then, yeah, playing Hardanger Fiddle, I've been able to play on some video games and other projects. I love fusion and I love playing all the traditional tunes on Hard Hunger Fiddle, but I also love improvising and doing projects that are not so traditional. 
And violin, yeah, across the board. Basically, I'm a performer, but I'm also a teacher. And I used to teach orchestra in the public schools. So I have a teaching background. But five years ago, I decided to become a freelance musician. And so I teach private lessons. But most of what I do is performance. However, with COVID, that changed. And I acquired more students. And so now I just kind of juggle between teaching and performing with violin, I play in some orchestras in the area, but I also do smaller projects or play with bands or chamber groups, recording sessions, subbing with different groups. I've played for a couple of movies and on violin and hard on fiddle. And I think my videos, some of my YouTube videos are going to be featured in the Troll Museum in Tromsø, Norway. Wow. There's lots of opportunities. I think a lot of people discover the Hard on Fiddle through Lord of the Rings because it's played for Ronan's theme. Right. Although it's played kind of like a violin with some vibrato and with single strings. I think it's played like... Which sounds a little weird to me. So that's that's how it sounds a little bit on the soundtrack. If I were to play it in a Norwegian way, I would play it more like. You know, adding some double stops or some mm-hmm. trills. Yeah. Well, I, I like your uh, <laughs> the way you played it better. I love playing this instrument. I love talking about it and teaching people about this instrument because there's a lot of interest in the United States, I think, with this instrument. Well, thanks. Thank you very much, Rachel. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. As Rachel mentioned, she has a website at rachelnesvik.com. That's R-A-C-H-E-L-N-E-S-V-I-G, all one word, lowercase, dot com where you can play several of her videos and see what these beautiful fiddles look like and sound like. Well worth your time. Our intro, music for the show, someone can write me and tell me what its name is, is played by Petter Eide, E-I-D-E, who, as far as I know, is 95 years old and still fiddling in the Norfjord area of Norway. And our outgoing music is Grieg's Morning Mood, played by the Czech Symphony Orchestra in 2012. It's available as a Creative Commons download, free for you and me, online. We are now aiming to produce a new podcast near the end of every month, starting in 2022. So stay tuned, or follow us at nordicontap.podbean.com. I'm your host, Eric Stavny. Till next gong, until next time, vi ses på Nordic on Tap. Say, did I read that you've made your own version of a violin? I do. A violin, L-Y-N? <laughs> yeah. It's an asymmetrically shaped 
instrument, which means that one side of the instrument is shaped differently than the other side. It's, it's really quite successful in terms of sound production, not successful in terms of sales, <laughs> but, uh, but that's okay. I have, I have several here <laughs> that are either in the closet or hanging on the wall.